Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts. Who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Selling the Cloud podcast. I'm your host, Ray Reich, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Petruzzi. Hello, Mark. Hello, Ray. We are fortunate to be joined today by Warren Zena, founder of the CRO Collective. Today, we will be covering four main areas. First, the evolution of the CRO role. Second, organizational readiness for a CRO. Third, talk about candidate readiness to be a CRO. And finally, get Warren's insight on the future of the CRO role. Warren, can you please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Selling the Cloud podcast? Ray and uh, Mark, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate setting up that uh, great introduction. So a bit of a long story. I won't bore you with the whole thing, but short of it is I've been in the marketing and sales sector, mostly in the advertising marketing side of the business for over 25 years. And I've worked for some pretty big agencies. And I've also had a lot of roles at smaller startups and smaller boutique agencies, primarily the beginning of my career selling marketing like services marketing. and then becoming a marketer. And so over the course of my career, as I started to develop a little bit more acuity around the sales and marketing and customer success functions as part of a, the B2B organizations that we are all sort of like in, in service of, it started to come clear to me that the role of the chief revenue officer, which is a role that I encountered only in the last eight or 10 years, which is only about as long as it's been around, it's being, uh, I would say, improperly appointed. And the uh, outcomes or the, the negative impact of the misaligned organizations is one of the symptoms that's coming out of the, how can I put it? The chief revenue officer tends to be a salesperson, unfortunately. And uh, what I've noticed was that chief revenue officers really need to be more revenue owners and revenue operators and business owners. And so being a buyer of marketing services for numerous years, it occurred to me that that system is broken and there are no place for CROs. There's no group for CROs. There's no training for CROs. There's no community for CROs. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. And so it occurred to me, would it be great if I could help CROs perform better, if I could support CEOs to hire them better, and if I can support people to become chief revenue officers and help maybe recalibrate the way that the chief revenue officer role is currently being assigned and integrated into uh, B2B organizations. So Warren, I think we both agree there's definitely the need for this, but the question is, why you? Why do you have the passion and going to invest a lot of risk into creating a community and even creating an entire company to serve that community for the CRO. Why is this such a passion of yours? You know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I guess some of it is just my own personal, like professional journey. I was looking for a way to <clears throat> afford myself a couple of things I wanted. One is I wanted to work for myself. I've always had the benefit of having a business of my own. Even as I work for other companies, I've always had a business on my own. But it was always sort of like a, a side gig. I mean, there were times in my career that that side gig sort of grew, became a little bit more profitable than my regular jobs. But pre-COVID, I started doing some thinking 
I was interviewing for some jobs. I got some job offers, some pretty nice job offers. And it occurred to me, you know, I really don't want to work for a big company anymore. I know that I'm capable. And I've always wanted to just run my own thing. And at the same time, I came up with this sort of, I wouldn't say it like an epiphany. I don't want to sound like that, like a light bulb fell on my head or something like that. It's a little bit cheesy, but it started to occur to me that there is a need for this. And I really know so much about all three of these aspects of this role, which is the sales, the marketing and the onboarding and the account management. And so it just almost kind of occurred to me as a way that I could take all the accumulation of my skills and my experience, and I could apply it to something where there was a marketplace that was missing. There was a need. I mean, I really see a need in the marketplace for this, mainly because of the issues we'll probably get into in a little bit more detail. And I thought, you know, I can make it go there. So what I did was first was I didn't just start doing it. I mean, I tested it out. I started talking to a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me. And I presented them with this idea. And as I presented it to people whom, in my opinion, were a lot more senior than I am and have a lot more stripes on their shoulders, so to speak, the response was overwhelming. I mean, I got like, wow, this is great. This is a smart idea. No one's doing this. Matter of fact, the answer I get mostly is, I can't believe no one's doing this. This is insane. And then the business model, which I'm sure we'll get into, is, is also one that I'm pretty proud of the way it's constructed. And more importantly is, is the mission that it serves, right? So I really believe that B2B companies are going through a major shift right now, right? So if you think about the way consumers buy things and the way companies sell things, it's never been like this. I mean, even though online advertising and online marketing and all the other automated marketing components of the marketplace have been around for a long time, it's reached this sort of cacophonous point where all of these old models are just not working anymore, right? The way that people want to buy, right? The way customers want to buy things, the overwhelming amount of opportunity there is for companies to just throw money and scale, messages and ads at people, it's becoming much, much more difficult to make an impact. And also a lot of the old models in the, which the way B2B companies work, they just seem to be sort of tired. And I think everyone knows this. There's no question about it. It's just sort of what's next, right? So what's the next thing, right? But people still, to be frank, are, are very um, addicted to old models. It's hard for companies to change. And so what you're seeing is a lot of old modalities being used to try and grow businesses that don't work anymore. And part of it is this sort of separation between the marketing function and a sales function and a customer success function. These have traditionally been functionally led organizations that have their own individual metrics and KPIs for success. And when you set up a company that way, what you do is you essentially create uh, smaller factions or tribes within a company that end up fighting with each other for credit. Okay. And so when you have that happen, what happens is the customer or the customer outcome becomes secondary, right? What's more important are the metrics. All this focus on measurement and all this focus on attribution, all this focus on where's our dollar being spent and which marketing spend was the one that got the most return. These are very self-centered, very myopic ways of looking at a business as opposed to how are customers enjoying the product? How was the customer experience? Did the customer buy it for this reason? Did they get the value that you promised out of it? How can we extend the lifetime of that? How can we get the customer to do more? How can we get more value out of the customer? Particularly when I think the number is something like 65% of new business comes from existing customers. This is the way companies should be thinking. So my thinking is there's definitely a need. I'm going to take a flyer on this and I'm going to start putting out some messaging and I'm going to get market share and kind of own a space, which I'm working on. And thank you. This podcast is kind of part of that, right? Give me an opportunity to be able to talk about this and uh, try and bring partners in that can help uh, fulfill on the mission. So that's essentially why I'm taking this risk. And I, I think it's worth it. Hey, Warren, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm going to throw this over to Mark and say, where do you want to start trying to unpack all that? <laughs> well, you know what, to Warren, what I love is that you're a former CMO, you're a, you're a marketing expert, 
driving this approach and this support around the CRO. So I think that by itself gives you an incredible vantage point. And tell us more about, did you view it the same way? Did you view it as this is something because of my marketing expertise, I can really serve the CRO community? Uh, or is it just kind of happenstance and you just have interacted enough with them, with, with CROs over the years? Unpack that a little bit, because I think that is that is really the, the differentiator in all this for me. Okay, yeah, I get it. I, I'd say actually, you know, it's an interesting thing because even though what I said in my preamble is, you know, I'm really a salesperson. I mean, that's why right. I cut my teeth being a salesperson, right? But what I was always, and I mean always selling, I, from the day that I started selling, and this is way back in my 20s, I was always selling some kind of marketing service, right? I was either selling advertising or I was selling a search or something. And so I was selling a marketing service and what ends up happening, and this is very common, right? If you meet a really good salesperson who sells a complex offering over time, as the proficiency of that salesperson increases, they also become an expert at the thing they sell. Yes. So, you know, I, I, met, I saw this one guy who was an amazing, he was amazing. He sold engineering products. He sold, you know, actual hardware, engineering hardware. And aside from being an amazing salesperson, he was incredibly knowledgeable about engineering. And that didn't happen because he's an engineer. It happened because he's been selling this crap for so long that he just had to become really good at being able to speak to customers with authority and, and, and some degree of uh, acuity. And, and as a result, he sort of became kind of a de facto engineer as well as a salesperson. And I guess you could say the same thing applies to me, right? I, after I started selling marketing services for such a long period of time, what happened mid-career was I started working for companies that were selling much more complicated consultative marketing services. And I became the product where I would sell in a con consultation to a, a client that lasted a year. And I was also included as one of the subject matter experts as well. It just sort of happened organically. I didn't plan that happening, to be honest with you. I wasn't like out to become some marketer, but it happened. So I sort of really got to know marketing. So to answer your question, what happened was uniquely, and I'm not alone, a lot of people that sell marketing services. I became really good at both. So I became someone who knew how to sell really well and run sales teams. I ran big sales teams. You know, I had, you know, a lot of people underneath me putting together sales leadership programs and, you know, sales models and go to markets, as well as knowing how to spend marketing dollars and how the effectiveness is and speaking to people about their marketing services. So those skills are very complementary, as you can understand why, right? And so all of a sudden now I got this dual role, right? I'm a salesperson and I'm a marketer. And so that afforded me, to your point, a really unique vantage point. So wherever I went to go work, let's say, for example, I went to go work at one of these big agencies. I met a big agency where like 99% of the people that work at these agencies, that's all they ever did was work at agencies. That's their life. Right. They never sold right. anything. But as being a salesperson, I looked at everything a lot differently. I was always looking at things from a sales perspective, right? The way I communicate, the way I try to persuade and you know create messaging and value. And that put me in an advantage because the main reason was when salespeople came to our agency to sell us their services because we had the money, I listened to those sales pitches a lot differently than someone who was looking for a solution. I was looking at it from a sales perspective. And this is where a lot of it started to happen. So I look at a salesperson in the same organization, and that is a historically contentious relationship. This is not one that 
is known for them getting along very well. I mean, marketers have this impression of salespeople as just sort of like, you know, making a lot of money and and being big mouths and just persuading people and hucksters and, you know, shilling stuff around. And yeah, you know, I've been around marketing people. They don't have a lot of nice things to say about salespeople, even though they know they need them because the salespeople are the ones that fulfill on all the revenue for the company. Similarly, salespeople think marketers are just lazy when they do. You know, they, they send out ads and they write dumb stuff and they don't know how to close a deal. They don't make any money. You know, they spend money, right? It's all this nonsense. And, you know, both are wrong and both are right in a way. And so that inherent cultural divide is exacerbated by the fact that marketing organizations are told, you should measure yourselves this way. And sales organizations are told, you need to measure yourselves that way. And those measurements are not in alignment with each other. So what's happening many times, oftentimes too much is salespeople think, these marketing people have no idea what it's like to sell. How can they possibly write ads and do marketing to support me when they don't even know what I do? If I put a, a marketing person on the call with me, they'd freeze up, they wouldn't know what the hell to do. Why would I want them to write anything for me? Vice versa, a marketing person is like, salespeople are morons. All they do is they just talk all day, they blab along their mouths. You know, we really understand human behavior and we understand messaging and language and persuasion. And you know, it's a really important thing. And they're both important, right? But because they're pitted up against each other, neither one of them can extract the value from each other to make the company really great. Now, what's missing? The customer is the most important part of this whole conversation and they're ignored. So you got this customer success organization that's part of the marketing organization and part of the sales organization because it's one of the customer facing parts of the company, which sort of is the ugly stepchild, right? They get the refuse from those two organizations. They get customers who weren't sold properly, they were given the wrong idea about what the product promises are. They were sold a hill of beans. They weren't onboarded properly. They have a thousand questions that the salespeople, the marketing organization should have answered. The customer success group has to clean that up and then onboard these people. And then they have to deal with the fact that a lot of these times the customer expectations are not consistent with what the product offers because they weren't sold properly. And now you got the customer success organization responsible for making sure these customers stay on board. And this is a big mess, right? And the chief revenue officer's job, in my view, and I'm pretty confidently correct about this, I think, is to actually harangue together all three of these organizations and build a cohesive revenue operation where the customer sits at the center of those three and that the uh, way in which those three organizations interact with one another is through collaborative goals and collaborative metrics that make sense for one another and that force them to actually utilize one another in ways that extract the value from both of their respective disciplines. And I don't think that that's happening. So that's basically the whole spiel, you know, if you will, of my, of my business model. So let me double click on something that you said. So there's all this friction between marketing sales and customer success. So mm -hmm. I've seen us create this chief revenue officer role to try to get alignment and hopefully maybe even tight integration between those three functions. But the majority of the time, I see so much of the focus being on internal process handoffs and flows and not mm -hmm. enough time on the actual customer experience and really measuring exactly what the customer experience is during those handles. Do you find the same thing? that initially it's been too focused on internal process alignment versus external customer experience? Yes. And the reason for that, there's about three or four different factors that make that happen. So there's the top three. And I think the main one is funding. So if I'm a B2B company and I need to get my first you know, seed round of money, right? And I, I could be in this position soon, right? I need to go to somebody to say, you know, I need, I need funding, right? I'm, I'm at this point where I've reached a certain level of interest and I got customer demand and I can't fulfill on it. So I need funds to hire people or whatever, which is common. Someone is going to give me that money if I'm persuasive enough. 
And as the CEO of a B2B company now, I'm in the devil's choice right now, which is that money comes with conditions and that money comes with expectations, understandable expectations and conditions. But by their nature, those expectations are counter to the expectations of my customers. They're not about the same. Okay. So if I have to like be held accountable to where that money is being spent, many times I may in fact decide that I want to treat my customers a certain way because I know it's best for them. But my adherence to the compliance of the conditions placed upon me of that financial infusion may require that I treat my customer differently. And there's a problem is that I have two masters, right? I'm like trying to serve my customer base. And I'm also trying to make my investors happy. Now, if it's my family that's giving me the money, I'm in more control, right? Because I can tell my mom and dad, hey, leave me the hell alone. I appreciate it. I know what I'm doing and you know, they'll sit around or whatever. But it's usually not your family. Usually it's some third-party organization whom has a portfolio of companies and they invest in these companies very much like a game of roulette, right? And they put their money in based on a number of parameters. They do their due diligence. Then they wait for the returns and they have certain demands and they have to run their businesses appropriately. And they put a lot of stressors on those organizations to run their businesses. And the CEO is in a position where now they sort of have to make this decision. And what they do, to your question, Ray, is they hire a CRO at some point with the intention of that CRO to come in and make me more money so I can make my investors happy, right? Because that's the board is really the one that's putting the pressure on me, right? I mean, my customers aren't, you know, I'm trying to chase them. I want them to buy from me. It's not like my customers are calling me up on the phone and asking me for things. It's more like, I'm just trying to make sure that they come to me, right? But the board is, the board is meeting me every week, you know, and hammering me with where are the returns and what's going on. So what happens is the chief revenue officers have been sort of grown out of a sales cycle, right? Most CROs, the profile of a CRO, maybe even like a caricature of one is like the, you know, the rainmaker, right? The, the big shot, you know, the guy with all the, the big Rolodex and he's made some numbers and he's made a killing and he can grow revenue and he builds big sales teams. He's got a great connections. And this person comes into the company and the focus that the CEO naturally puts that person in, given the conditions that I just referenced, is to sell or to run a sales organization or to focus primarily on the selling part of the equation, right? And what ends up happening as a result is the problems that I alluded to earlier become exacerbated because now you've got an, an executive who's overseeing one of those three functions. And sales eats its young. I mean, in any company, right, all the money always goes to sales. All the support always goes to sales. Whereas marketing is the first thing to get cut as soon as things go downhill and marketing is always struggling to keep itself relevant. So what you're doing is you're actually creating or inflating an existing division by making one organization more important than another, in, in fact, making that division worse. And so the recalibration that I'm working on is how do I have a CEO look at the role differently and hire a CRO that's going to come in, a CEO, to hire a CRO who actually isn't going to focus on sales, avoid the temptation to want that person to run sales, and actually have that person focus on the, an actual like holistic operation of the sales, marketing, and customer success functions. And this is a hard thing to do if you can appreciate them being in that kind of pressure. So that's how I build what I call CRO-ready organizations, which are companies who recognize this, right, have been sort of schooled in this thinking, see the shortcomings of that short-term thinking, and hire somebody to come in and do things in a way that I'm proposing that will create a much more cohesive organization and, and will not kind of only alienate customers and build divisions in companies. So that's sort of the idea behind why this happens, what you referred to. That's that those are the dynamics and there's others, but that's the main one that, that affects this. So again, I appreciate you allowing me to go on and answer these questions at such length, but that's basically the whole point here. Oh, and that's great stuff, Warren. I'll tell you, the um, what happens then 
is you're actually pre-programming DNA. You're, you're, you're programming in the DNA right from the beginning of these companies. And it's really hard to, to unprogram that. And then you're, you're actually, you're programming the DNA of CEOs as they go from one startup to another or, or yep. board members. So how do you break that? How do you go in there and make sure that that concept of, you know, bringing in the person with the big Rolodex or, you know, the big personality to be CRO rather than a true revenue leader, somebody who really understands the importance of marketing, somebody who understands what needs to happen within a customer success organization. How do you change all that? So, you know, this is great. And this is where it goes to me diagnosing the right kind of customer, right? So if I were to get hired by a pretty complex, sophisticated organization that has, like you said, you know, historical family dysfunction for 10 years, it's almost impossible. I think that it, it is achievable, but I think that undoing a lot of that stuff would be too risky for some people to take on. I, I'd be really impressed with a CEO who hired me and said, I don't care that we're, you know, $250 million company, I'm, I'm doing this. That would be really impressive and it would be great. It, it's achievable, but you need a leader like that, right? Who's got the willingness and I'll, I'll say the balls to take a, on a job like that. That's a tough thing, you know, because it's risky, right? And CEOs by their very nature, what they do, a CEO's job is really to mitigate risk. That's a yeah. CEO's job is to do, right? And so what I'm doing is I'm doing that. So I go to a CEO who's a little bit earlier in that phase. So for me, the sweet spot for me is like the pre-seed round or post-seed round CEO who has not hired a CRO yet, right? Who's like thinking about that, who sees this need in, in the future and is already starting to show signs. And it, it's, so, it's so different than any other habit. If we had the ability, which is almost impossible to do, if we could like, you know, take the donuts out of our kids' mouths when they were five years old, you know, we could probably get them to stop eating sugar when they're 20. But, you know, we can't, you know, because they reach for it or they get it in school. And so you don't, we don't have the control over their environment. And so they develop these bad habits that they have to unlearn later when they get fat and unhealthy or they get cancer, you know? And so I don't want that to happen. You know, I don't want these companies to go through, but most of them have to, they kind of have to kind of learn the evils of their ways by having these issues. And, you know, sometimes I'll catch someone who said, yeah, you know, we tried that, it, it failed. But the real way I, it works is this, is when you provide a company or a CEO with compelling data that shows, reveals the truth about state of the organization, it's impossible for any, I guess, responsible leader. And again, I'm, I'm assuming that most of the people that would hire me are, are generally responsible. They wouldn't hire me in the first place that they're willing to look at that data and say, okay, you know what, something's gotta be done here. It's just so different than the same diagnosis I just presented. So like, if you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you a blood test and a whole bunch of checkups. And the doctor says, look, Mark, I got some news, right? You don't stop doing X, you know, you're going to die in five years. I mean, that kind of report is, for most people, it's a wake-up call, right? You, you just stop eating the whatever, you know, because you realize that the habit you have is deadly, right? So what I'm sort of doing, and I won't get into the weeds of it, but there's a methodology by which we provide the organization leadership with a diagnosis of symptoms of their organization and the cost of those symptoms. And in doing so, it reveals the ways in which the symptoms that I referenced earlier, these you know, silos, this infighting and customer retention issues, things that matter become really relevant and really self-evident related specifically to the point that I'm making that like, look at the way your company structured and look at the results. So, you know, that's a tipping point, right? There are some clients who will go, wow, my God, I never knew this. This is insane. We have to do something about this. And then, you know, we can then go to work on it. Some of them go, well, thanks. This is horrible news, but you know, I'm going to stick with my plan anyway. And I guess that's, that's their choice, right? I can't 
force someone to eat healthier, right? But I can show them the data that should indicate a good reason or a compelling reason why they should, right? And then once they make that decision, then a whole other series of work goes into how to build that organization, how to hire properly, how to structure things, how to recalibrate the organization, how to look at metrics differently. It gets into a lot of issues related to the way that they use technology and the way they use metrics and other things that have been you know, the outcome of those bad habits that need to be rethought. So that's a much more complex part of my business, which is more what I call the, like the enterprise or the business led sort of consulting part, right? So that's basically the general idea is sort of a uh, reveal the truth about their current situation with such degree of clarity that they are in a position where they have to either make a decision or not to do something about it. Well, unfortunately, we're already coming up to our 30 minutes, but there's a couple of questions I really want to make sure, Mark, and I ask you. So let's try to, if we can, kind of give me almost your rapid fire. Here's what we do, Ray. So first of all, what specifically can a CEO do to prepare their organization for this CRO role? Top two or three things to get the organization readiness. Yeah, the first thing, I say this to CEOs all the time. First question is, why do you want to hire one? And, and be honest, like, don't give me the highfalutin answer. Like, why do you really want a chief revenue officer? And usually it's like, I want the CR offer to save me this way and be honest about what that is. And if it's anything to do with selling or making the company more money, it's probably a red flag and you really need to think twice about it. That's the first thing. Second thing is then figure out whether or not your company has the symptoms that I'm referencing. Do your, does your company have misalignment issues? Do you find that your marketing organization, your sales organization are not working together? You know, figure that out. And then figure out what the gaps are. The third thing you need to do is also figure out what's the right qualities and characteristics of a CRO, given the nature of what I'm talking about. Like what type of person would be needed for the job I'm talking about, as opposed to the person you are going to hire? And how do you find that person who's right for that, right? And um, the last part would be start building different systems within your company to have your sales, marketing, and customer success organizations uh, recalibrate the way they're measured so that they're forced to have to work together as a team. And the CEO should be the CRO de facto before bringing one on. So the CEO's job is to sort of get the engine started, so to speak, and then bring in a chief revenue officer to kind of take it to the next level. That's I, I think the CEO sort of can't use a CRO as a buffer. It has to sort of like get in there and do the job himself. And there's a lot more, but those are the basic things I, I think a CEO should be thinking about. The main one so being Warren, don't hire a CRO to sell. That's what I would say the first thing you should do. I love it. So Warren, tell us more about those characteristics. What are the characteristics of a successful CRO in your model? Yeah, you know, a, a good CRO really is a business leader. Like good CROs have really excellent business acumen, meaning they understand how a business works, right? They look at the way thing money is spent and how that money derives value and how that money is extracts you know, the right result with the right level of profitability left over, right? How the people are hired and how they're deployed, right? And they, they understand like how to run a business and they look at a revenue team no different than a business owner would, right? So if I run a restaurant, you know, there's the front of the house, there's the back of the house, right? There's the food that I order, there's the plates, the cups, the knives, the everything. And a good business owner that runs a restaurant sort of looks at all that stuff and understands how that works. And I think a CRO needs to be much more of a comprehensive business leader who understands these things. And then preferably someone who has really good sales experience and knows what it's like to sell. If optimally someone who has marketing experience, but in my view, 
they don't have to be experts in those fields. They need to be someone who understands it enough that they can identify great people who can oversee those organizations and they know how to lead those people to do a great job. So a good CRO puts a great team in place and understands how to coordinate people like on a football field, you know, get the best quarterback, good front line. That's actually a good analogy. I'd say like, you know, probably uh, it's a couple of really great NFL coaches who'd make great CROs because they understand how to put pieces on a field and have them work together to create an outcome. That's really much more what it's like, you know. So Warren, you actually went into something that is a, a strong belief of, of mine, and that is the woman or the man who is going to be, you know, to turn out to be the best CRO is really, the, it's the same person who's going to be a phenomenal CEO. There's only so. one difference, and, and you hit on it earlier. The CEO, I want them to be thinking about risk every single day and understand what risk means and how to avoid it. The CRO, I don't want them thinking about risk. Exactly. I, no. I want to take that out. It's the same person with one different focus day to day. I think that's right. And I, I think CROs would make great CEOs. I think that's a, that's a good next track. And I think that the CRO, a good CRO will become and should become the CEO's most trusted partner in running the oh, business. Yeah. Like those two should yeah. be very tight together. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of components to it, which we obviously I understand we don't have a lot of time to get into it, but yeah, there's other aspects of the CRO's role that also dip into product, right. And dip into some operations and even finance, and you could probably understand why, right? Yeah. So the CFO's role, you know, is, is is interesting too. So, but yes, that's a that's a great point. I think you're right. I think that the CRO can be a little bolder, you know, and take some risks. Well, I'm known to be a little bit of a contrarian, so I'm going to do one hot take for you to respond sure. to before we wrap great. wrap up today. Especially, you mentioned, you know, you like to do earlier stage companies, even seed stage or post seed stage, right? To look at a CRO. My perspective is if you're a one to five million dollar ARR company and you have major friction between marketing, sales, and CS, that's the failure of the CEO. And the CEO is just outsourcing the issue that they couldn't manage. And the culture's already got some hair on it, so to speak. Do you agree that if you already yeah. have those issues in spades, that the CEO might be the issue, not hiring a CRO? Yeah, there's no doubt that the fish always stinks from the head. I would say it's a great point. I agree with it. I think a company between 1 million and 5 million probably, in my opinion, probably doesn't have the level of complexity where this issue is going to be too pervasive. It's probably too early. I mean, I, I've seen CROs get hired as like the third person in a company. I'm like, what the hell is that all about? Why would you hire a CRO? You know, oh, because I want a great salesperson. This guy wouldn't take the job unless I gave him that title. Seriously, that's the only reason they do that. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's really just a lot of vanity crap. You know, the reality is that if you're really thinking seriously about a chief revenue officer role, you got to have a, a defined sales organization, a defined marketing organization, and a defined customer onboarding organization. doesn't mean they have to be like 20 people each. It can be three people each, but they need to be clearly defined that people have those roles and that they have to work together. So I think if I did the math, and again, I don't have any sort of empirical data on this that it's probably around $10 million when that stuff starts to get crazy because that's when some complexity starts to come in. And, and I think that's where, yes, Gray, I'm first looking at the CEO and I'm saying to him, look what you created here. Like you're probably using some old blueprint that you didn't think about because everyone else did it, but it doesn't work. And let's go over it together. Let's talk about why it doesn't work. And before you make your next executive hire, let's fix it 
so that you don't bring this bad dysfunction into all your executive hires and take a culture that doesn't work and only like add more, you know, seeds and water to it. Like just kill it and let's start fresh, right? And I think that you're right. I think that the CEO is ultimately responsible as, as a CEO should be. I mean, that's their job is to sort of take on that responsibility when they, when they take on that role. They are accountable for that kind of stuff. And they are outsourcing it. But as I said before, they sort of need to become that first before they can outsource it, right? I think just handing it over to somebody is a little lazy and I don't think it'll work. I think the CEO needs to go, all right, I got to do this. I got to figure out how to do this. Then I think it'd be an appropriate time to hand it over. It's my my opinion. Thank you, Warren. Mark, anything you want to add to that before we wrap up today? No, I think this was a very interesting discussion and I wish we had more time, Warren, for you to really go deeper. This was great, Ray. I'll hand back to you to close us up. Warren, thank you so much for joining us today on Selling the Cloud. Really appreciate it and look forward to seeing how the CRO Collective continues to grow. And to our audience, if you are enjoying and finding value from the guests and content that we're providing, it would mean the world to us if you go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app and give us a rating and even a recommendation how we can make the show even better. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation.